You know, I had the they realized, oh my gosh. What? Oh my gosh, dude. Well, two things. I had the realization that um, I'm the only person that is possibly recognizable from the podcast by name. By name. Oh. Because uh, you, <laughs> nobody knows y'all's names. <laughs> we Nobody uses, we never really use your names. That's true. It's, o- it's only. Let's uh, keep it that way. Seabisk. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. I went and visited a girl this weekend, or at least tried to. At uh, She's, um, I don't know how to say this properly, but... She's in a, a juvenile um, prison facility. Yeah, juvenile county detention facility. Center. Detention center, that's right. Um, and I pulled up, huge, huge wall, like very, very, very nice facility. You could tell they were not playing games here, like razor wire around the 20-foot walls. And this girl's 14. She's pretty young. Um, so I, I went out to visit her. This is the second weekend she's been in there, and I had been working with her for a little while before the incident occurred. So I get to the place. I had talked to her mom that I could get on the list so that I could visit her. And like her counselors had to approve it and what all these like rules and everything you have to go through. And I come in and I have my cell phone with me and I'm trying to show them like, no, look, this is what I got from their mom, from this girl's mom saying that I could come in. And she said I was on the list. And they just kept refusing. Like, you're not on the list. You can't You can't come in. They have an hour visiting period for the whole week. And I'm like, no, this is my last weekend. I'm going to be here. I, you don't understand. I'm not going to be able to see her. And the whole time I'm just thinking, like, she's right behind this wall, sitting, waiting for visitors. And there's, like, <laughs> 10 more minutes left in this hour that I can see her. I'm going to be gone. I'm never gonna, probably never going to see her again. And wanting so bad to go back and just say hi and let her see me and let her know she's not alone and like all these things that I wanted to tell her. And this dude was totally refusing me. Like, oh, you're not even allowed to have a cell phone in here. You need to go and put that in the car. And like, was very businesslike and and I understood that. But even though he was just doing his job and like I totally understood that he's not going to let me in. It's not up to him. Like, it's not like he's a mean guy saying, no, I don't want you to see this girl and comfort her because I'm a huge jerk. Even though that's what I heard him saying. (laughs) He was just, he was being, um, you know, a county employee, a government official trying to do the job the best he can. Like you can't go around counselor rules and, um, especially in situations like these where, where it is like really high stakes stuff. But considering all that, I could not get over the fact that I, I like hated this dude's face, you know, as, and it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault at all, but he was the person in front of me that was delivering me this message that I was so upset about. And so I had to drive back home, you know, another 45 minutes without having seen this girl and totally disappointed. And it just kept occurring to me, like, it's not that guy's fault. You know, I'm really, I'm really angry. 
but I could not separate the message from the messenger. And kind of in the same way, like with the whole second collection deal is like, I'm, I'm the messenger to this message and they know me, they know the messenger. And that guy, even though it wasn't his fault, I could not remove him from that situation. I cannot remove him as a person from being a barricade to what I was trying to get to. Like he is, he's hurting me was how I took it. Um, and I think that reality is super present within any time that we talk about the gospel or consider evangelization. You know, in formation, we hear all the time that the the seminarian is a bridge and our humanity has to be a bridge from others to Christ. But it was such a jarring experience of, <laughs> and, and like I, as much as I intellectually knew it, deep down, I could not separate the message from the messenger or the messenger from the message. And uh, I'm still resentful towards that guy. But, I mean, that has big-time ramifications for us as priests and seminarians and anyone living the Christian vocation. Like, we have to be, our humanity can, it's just never removed. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. But, yeah, that was a a not fun experience that I had this weekend. Oh, man, that's such a bummer. So you didn't get to see her. I didn't get to see her, man. I had to, you know what happened though? I did when I was leaving, one of the security guards, um, this kind of like sweet black lady and she was very kind to me and um, she said, oh, you know, I just saw her and I was like prying these questions at her. Is she doing okay? Like, are the other girls being nice to her? Like, I don't even know. Is she really upset or is she really sad? And she said, no, I just saw her and she's doing really, really well and like you have to put on a tough face, so she's doing fine. This girl like is very tough on the exterior, and um, and so I just said like, well, please tell her. Like a big tall white dude came and saw her, and um, <laughs> that I I just say hi and I'm praying for her, and you know I love her, and she's doing okay, and so that was very very comforting to be able to hopefully pass that message along um, to to her on the inside. But I I did never get to see her, which was unfortunate. Um, well, and that gets to your point too, about the importance of the face, face to face. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about this a lot as I'm trying to prep a sort of a marriage program, both personally, because like as a priest, you prepare couples for marriage and it's a lot of just a one-on-two, not one-on-one you're, you're with the couple, you know, and it's, it's interactive, you know, it's not just me lecturing them, but at the same time, I don't want to just be completely directionless. <clears throat> so I'm reading and thinking and writing and stuff like that. And this whole like spousal meaning of the body, John Paul II stuff, um, theology of the body, I have to confess, like it never, it never grabbed me uh, as much as we talked about it in seminary and all that. Um, but the importance of the body in I mean, it has all sorts of ramifications in our sexual morality, um, the meaning of our bodies. But it's basically just like everything in the Christian life based on the doctrine that we are embodied souls, that you don't, like Christianity is not just a matter of the health of your soul, and it, regardless of what you do with your body, you know, so long as your intention is pure or, or whatever, this kind of fallacy of dualism. Everything 
like people know you mean what you say because you do things with your body. Like you show up, you drive 45 minutes and you, and you put yourself in front of a person. Um, you know, even a prayer, like a blessing, putting your hand on somebody's shoulder or something. Like I blessed a friend's baby who is still in the womb and, you know, it makes a big difference to put your hand on the person's body and bless this child that's in there, you know? Um, I don't know. That's a, I, I was thinking about this with like, how do you, how do we as whatever in this, in this cultural context, how do we introduce people to a personal relationship with Jesus when we're so bad generally at having a personal relationship with anyone, you know, like so much of what we, our communication is disembodied. Um, you know, and we're like kind of terrified of face-to-face conversations because of the risks involved in the, you know, we'd rather write an email than even make a phone call because with an email you can like delete stuff and edit it. And But personal re- interaction is very, uh, makes you very vulnerable. And we're, you know, even like that guy, <laughs> just all those rules and, and the thickets of legalism it's like, you know, you know, I could get sued if we'd, I was just going, I, I went and visited a guy at a, a senior living place and he's in his sixties and he's uh, dying of cancer and somehow, I don't know, got in touch with the parish and I went over there and he's just by himself. He's a super low income, just collects social security and this is the best place he can afford. And, and the people there, um, you know, like you said, it's not their fault. They're just doing their job. And I'm sure the company that owns the place has been very clear with what they expect of them and what they don't expect of them. And, but it's like to the point where if somebody falls down, they can't pick them up because, you know, they might, if they don't, don't do it right, they might sue them and then whatever they get fired or the company's on the hook. So instead, like if somebody just falls down in their apartment, they can't just call for help. They, the people will say like, no, we'll call an ambulance. Uh, and this guy, he's like, you know, not so sure on his feet and he's fallen down a couple times in his apartment and the nurse will come in and just be like, well, either you get up by yourself or I'll call an ambulance, but I can't help you. And so he's like, no, don't call the ambulance. So he's just like spends 20 minutes trying to get back on his feet. Oh my god! And, and you're just dude. like, wow, this is, <laughs> I mean, I understand the law is here to protect us and stuff. Like the reason you're able to sue someone is so that they can't just do whatever, you know, it's like your recourse to the law. But look at the result of this, that that a person has to stand there and watch a person struggle to get to their feet instead of just like the common human sympathetic reaction of like, I have an able body and you don't, I'll help you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Relax. Dude, it's been weird this, this past week. Um, not weird, but kind of, pleasant like just a lot of uh friends randomly like reaching out and like yesterday I, w- I went and had lunch with a friend who lives in St. Paul uh he was my college roommate and um it was his wife who's whose belly I blessed uh, but I haven't seen him in a really long time um got to sit there and just like hash out you know life stuff and kind of like we do every week but just these people who have been really close to me um you know, yesterday I hung out with a priest friend of mine. We hang out all the time. But then this this morning I got a phone call at the parish from Father Kevin McDonald. Do you know that guy? 
yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. dude, he just called out of nowhere. I called the landline at the parish. I happened to be in the office, and we talked for like a half an hour. <laughs> Yes. You know, he's in New Mexico. Yeah, he's, but he's uh, the reason. One of the reasons he was calling was because he's driving out to New York this summer to do like a series of concerts with his funk band. Oh uh, my god! And I I went and checked out his website afterwards. FRKevinSanJose.com. <laughs> and uh, he's just like, yeah, man, I really dig what you're doing. I saw your blog and and you know, keep doing that, you know, like priests aren't just these bureaucrats and, and whatever, like we're human beings and blah, blah, blah. And, um, so I don't know, just like early God kind of sending some other examples, but talking about the personalism thing of like, you know, we are our relationships and, um, I don't know. It's just, it's so important to be a friend and have friends and, like particularly in the priesthood, I feel like I was just reading a, a little reflection a, a priest mentor of mine wrote uh, for a publication. It was about like priestly fraternity. And one of the images he used, because he was talking about like, you know, if we're the bridegroom of the church, we're, we're standing in for Christ the head, the bridegroom of the church, then, okay, so we're married to the church. But like there's 1.2 billion Catholics on planet Earth. And there's 400,000 priests, roughly. <clears throat> He's like, just imagine you're in a river valley. And on one side of the river, you have the 400,000 priests alive and working right now. And then on the other side is the 1.2 billion Catholics. You know, like if we all tried individually, like I'm married to them all, you know, like that's our theology. But in practice, it's so impossible. You know, if we don't talk to one another, if we don't if we aren't with one another and share our hearts and our ourselves with one another, then like, we'll just be, we'll just be eaten alive, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, uh, it's very refreshing to, first of all, like to focus on the, the relationship that conditions all other relationships, which is prayer. Like this is, is very difficult in our time and place. Um, and in the daily work of a parish priest to just, like sit down and do a daily holy hour. Um, we talked about it in the seminary so much, but it's it's really a challenge. If you don't, for me, it's like if I don't do it first thing, then it will just, I'll just excuse myself, you know? And the bravery, it's so easy to just have that become a sort of pharisaical, like I read the words, I'm done with that, you know? And even the mass, you end up saying like three or four masses on a weekend day, like a Saturday or a Sunday. And it's really hard to make that really sincere. Like this is my body given up for you. Um, but I don't know what the point of this rambling is, but just thinking about <laughs> that more and more of like that we're saved in community, that this is all part of God's like big project to save everybody. And I'm just one little piece in it. But the temptation is always to kind of like we were talking about last week, the temptation is to just say, um, I know all the answers or, you know, I, I know exactly the direction we should take it because and then you go and fail and then you just get depressed. But if you see it as all bit like one one small part of a one big like you going and seeing that girl at the juvenile detention center and not even being able to go in, but just giving her the message like someone cares and someone's thinking about you, you know, Um 
I don't know. That's it. All there is in the end is this personal stuff, you know? Anyway, when do you guys want to start podcasting? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody told me this past week I was hanging out with uh, these young Catholic professionals. I've become one of their chaplains, this, this group in Chicago. Uh, they're doing a lot of really good things. But one of them is a listener. One of the head dudes in the organization is a is a listener every week. And he's like, can I give you guys some constructive critis- criticism? I was like, sure. He's like, do you tell him no? I to- yeah, I told him, <laughs> who the heck do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> telling us what to do. He's like, you guys, you guys used to just shoot the S, you know, and like you didn't have topics. You just you just talked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, first of all, let me just dispel any myth that the quote unquote topics are in any way prepared. <laughs> That's just <laughs> when there's a lull in the conversation. We tell Juice, what's the topic? Yeah. And, and then he just shoots something from the hip and then we see where it goes. True. It's really interesting because the constructive criticism I received recently about the podcast, which I also declined and then they forced upon me unhappily, um, (laughs) was y'all need to be more clear about what you're talking about, a.k.a. like don't shoot the S as much as you do. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, you know, not really our thing there. That's a perfect example. You can't can't please everyone. So let's just please no one. That's right. That's right. We can just call it good for today. Just shut it down. <laughs> shut it down. Shut her down. So we had to shut her down. Yeah. There is something nice about jamming in the morning. Sorry that I uh, had to throw a wrench in all those plans, but that's all good, dude. Hospitals that CPE stuff, they uh, they take it very seriously. Oh yeah. It's, oh my gosh. What were you, was re- that what you were doing yesterday? Yeah, I had an orientation for our hospital. Um, and it's in Atlanta? Yeah, it's Northside. And they uh, apparently it's nicknamed the uh, Baby Factory. And we deliver more babies than any other hospital in the country. Hmm. Something like that. Um, but it was this yeah whole big thing. What I realized is the people who do CPE, that's uh, not, I don't want to be rude about this, but that's like, the center of their world in the sense that that's all they all they do and so to have someone else who's doing other things and cpe is like one thing among many i don't think that makes sense to them or it's just not usual for them right and and so uh i guess i'm realizing like this is going to be they're very demanding mm-hmm. and I, i'm going to need to to answer that demand um it's an intense it was probably the most intense ministerial thing I did as a seminarian was 40 hours a week in a hospital Mm. for 10 weeks. As far as the situations or just the schedule? Um, both, you you know, you're just dealing with, I was out in Colorado and, uh, you're just all day sitting with sick people of all ages. Some people dying, some people, you know, one of the things I realized was like what, what most, what so many people are sick from. It's like diabetes, alcohol mm. um copd from smoking mm-hmm. usually and you just see these things like mm-hmm. patterns after patterns and you see what it is to be resuscitated like in the er and um just limit stuff like people that people in healthcare professions see every single day and and somehow 
handle. But as the chaplain, you're not, you, you can't really disengage and just be like, I'm doing a job. This is just a human body. It's like working on a car, you know, as the chaplain, you're there with the family or with the person themselves who are sick. And, uh, you have to engage the suffering aspect of it, not just the, the plumbing, you know? Yeah. So I, I made a habit of getting out into the woods and the mountains and stuff on my days off, or even in the afternoons, I'd go fly fishing. Mm -hmm. uh, just to kind of like remind myself that my legs still work and I'm free to go outside because you're just inside all day with people that can't do those things. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to remind myself that I'm still alive, you know. But at the same time, not trying to like escape it. I don't know. It's just... Let's get ready, dude. Side note, by the way. Sorry, I'm a little bit... I got, I got like a summer cold going on or something so um i got some dayquil in me a little bit loopy not gonna lie. <laughs> but uh kind of reminds me of well no not exactly but when i went to haiti that time and i took the malaria medicine like the once a week stuff and one of the side effects was uh it gave you weird dreams and that was crazy that was like the closest i had ever been to being on drugs <laughs> I looked forward to it every night that I took it. Like I would take it on Sunday nights. It's like watching a movie. You would just have the craziest dreams, man. <laughs> but it yeah. was it was super fun. Anyway, uh, we can yeah. CP is. It, it, I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. But I was talking to this guy last night, a really cool guy I met here at the parish, and just to like pick your guys' brains. On this this guy is considering the church he grew up protestant and it's just he's a well-read guy uh it's a very fun conversation but how do you explain to someone the notion of development of doctrine concisely so i know that's a huge topic shift but that just shows you like where my brain is <laughs> today but i when we were going like we were talking about it and he just, you know, I know him well enough at this point, like, we just talk very, like, honestly with each other. He's like, man, he's like, you know, to be honest, some of the stuff you say, like, sounds like the stuff that I'm kind of wanting to get away from in Protestantism, you know? And so, and we, we had talked about, like, having a teaching authority within the development of doctrine in the magisterium and everything like that. Uh, and by the end, I mean, it was, it was a cool conversation, but it was something that, I found it very hard to to really like give to him. Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, first off, did you are you hearing fuzziness from Juice, Mike? Yeah, you okay. sound pretty crappy, dude. All right, that's alright. Dang it, dude! It's probably the internet here. Yeah, I understood everything you said, but it's fine. Yeah, I did. I did it oh. well. I think that uh, I don't. This, honestly, I don't know that much about this topic. I think Newman is the guy to read the is it the essay and on the development of doctrine or something like that but he has a quote that says uh what is it to be alive is it like is the to, caterpillar to butterfly or something yeah it's like to be alive is to change and to be perfect is to have changed often or something like that yeah, yeah. um yeah, for sure, for sure. and so like but the question is just like what is change then because he, he sees the church and even her dogmas as as or, organic, like speech of a of a personal nature of a, like a body, you know. And so, 
like you can't just etch it in stone and then it's going to mean the same thing to everybody in every place or even that it's like fully understood um or fully fully articulated um but at the same time you can't just throw it away and get a new teaching you know um you have to reckon with the teachings as they are so i mean that's a that's a very deep topic but i to me the like the linchpin of the whole thing of of all of this like anytime there's a conflict between what the church teaches or says on a topic or i mean morality let's be honest it's always morality because everybody wants to break the rules they say why don't the rules just change and then we won't have to feel bad um this generalization but it seems to me like the linchpin of, of it all is always fundamental theology, whether or not God is capable of revealing himself to us or whether or not we're yeah. capable of receiving a revelation. And yeah, I totally, I totally agree on that, which is way different than like going to just a, a straight apologetics or anything. Yeah. You anything can do the ad hoc that. method of saying exactly. like, where, where's that in the Bible and blah, blah, blah. And, um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, making like philosophical arguments based on natural law or whatever else, but the the key thing, because as we often say, it's like it's a question of surrender and obedience, not so much like a a clever um, like attainment of some perfect way of life. You know, we're not Ben Franklin like working on one virtue at a time. We're just sinners uh, who have been saved and are being saved through being led by the Shepherd and the way, the truth, and the life, like our relationship with him conditions everything. It's the way we're being forgiven for our sins, and it's also the way of learning to, you know, sin no more and to become saints. But if we don't, if we don't see ourselves as capable of receiving a revelation or God as so personal as to be able to speak in language we can understand, then there's no point, you know, then there's no way to adjudicate arguments because your conception, it's the whole question of like, how can there be one religion that's right when there's so many other religions that say basically the same thing, but just with a little different belief system, you know? Well, and that's what the attempt of a fundamental theology, or at least what I remember from like Cardinal Dulles, is trying to show the grounds on which revelation is possible. Is that right? Yeah, that's what fundamental theology is. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah, we're, I, we're probably thinking both exactly, we're all three of us, of de Gaulle's class. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the entire Certainly. point of his whole class is yeah. showing that personal revelation of God is possible and does occur. Mm -hmm. And it takes place within, you know, the fullness of it within the church. But just to add your two lines about change, like, uh, what, what were they that you began with? I forget what the first one is. It's, uh, it's either like to be it's alive, to, is to, to live is to it's change. To live is to change and to be yeah, perfect is to have changed to often. Changed often. Yeah. That's right. Because I, I, well, the first thing that I thought of when you asked was, I mean, I'm not going to say it better than, than Baron does. And he has a little, a video where he goes through Newman's, um, just explanation, maybe his proofs of the development of doctrine. And it yeah. is so good. Yeah. But I, I yeah. Um, I remember a line that he has in there just to add a line about changes. He says to not change is to be dead as well. Mm -hmm. Like when something isn't changing with its natural surroundings, with the context in which it's placed and living, that's when we say something is dead. Like you have a deer that's not changing with its environment. It just gets eaten alive. It's no longer no longer living. And then obviously the 
the second thing that I thought of was the the great river analogy, which I know we've talked about on the podcast as well. And then the little trickle offs that don't continue to move, they become stagnant and end up uh, drying up eventually. But then the river itself, um, like always continues to move and it, it has to be changing and progressing and developing. But those are the two things that I thought of simply. Mm-hmm. I don't think it, I mean, I'm not going to say it better than Baron. His, that video rocked my world. I wanted to send it to like every Protestant I knew. <laughs> oh, yes. Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, so... Father, do you want to put out um, a little announcement? Because we have just been basically blowing, blowing farts into our mics for thir- for an hour. <laughs> what has it been? An hour? Yeah. Um, about... A possible speaking tour? Sure. Are we going to... I mean, I think we should put it out. I think we should. How about just like a feeler? I'll just leave this part in. Like, if anybody's interested in having us live in person, then email 3dogsnorth at gmail.com and we'll try to work something out. But I think with scheduling, like, we're not going to schedule a tour ourselves, are we? Oh, yeah. No, tour is not the right word in the sense of like sequential talks that are... Uh, like around the country tour? No. Right. <laughs> no, absolutely so not. So if anybody yeah. wants to have Three Dogs North play their birthday party or something like that, shoot me an email. Diga knows. I have one thing I will share with... Uh, one of you guys has to leave, right? I said one thirty. I can probably stretch it another 10 minutes or so. So okay. go ahead. Because we probably should come up with something that is... <laughs> <laughs> I think that we were dropping bombs, dude. You're right. You're right. <laughs> no, but uh, like I was talking about that guy at that the senior living place, he's dying. And um, I don't know. This has been maybe this is why we're not like saying anything really concrete or quotable, because at least from my experience lately has been a lot of these. Uh, well, more often I'm going over and, and meeting people like in their last days or weeks or months and praying with them. And that's. I mean, how do you put words to that experience? You can't really. Um, and it makes you less sure. It makes you like at one and the same time, less sure about it, pretty much everything, but then more sure of like the most important thing. Yeah. And what I realized with talking to this guy and him telling me his whole life story, much of it having pretty profound heartbreak and wounds. Um, I was just looking at this guy and realizing like he wants one of the most beautiful things as a priest is to have somebody want what you have to give them, you know, and, uh, and really need it. Like, I'm going to absolve this guy of every one of his sins. I'm going to anoint him with the oil of the infirm for his spiritual strengthening. And I'm going to give him the body of Christ. And, uh, and I thought to myself, just looking at him in his sad state and he's very sick and, I thought this guy is very close to heaven, you know, and we can say that all the time, like, you know, heaven is real and we're going to go there and you know, say it at funerals all the time. But there's something about the face again. I mean, that's the, maybe that's the thread that's sewing this all together. Everything we're talking about, like looking at this guy's face and thinking he's going to be in heaven before me, like pretty soon. And I might be here when he goes, you know? Um, 
And that, uh, I don't know, that, that reality really struck me as um, like what's really, really important is that like I, I remember one time after going to confession, um, leaving and doing my penance and praying a little bit in the church wherever I was and thinking to myself, God, all I really want is this feeling right before I die. Like everything else will be fine. You know, like if I fail in life at certain things that I try or really think were important or put a lot of eggs in one basket, so long as I feel this in the end, it's fine. Um, and I don't know, that was, that was a very beautiful thing for me to see. And it made me also like the next day I was like, I called him up and I had some stuff to bring him. Like I wanted him to, he had a rosary and he didn't know how to pray it. So I wanted to like teach him how to pray the rosary and all this stuff. And it just drew out a lot of generosity from me. Um, because I think just as a man, especially as a celibate, like uh, my vital life energy is to give, you know, um, but what stunts a lot of times, uh, us men is like when, what you have to give is not wanted or, or whatever, you know what I mean? Like that's where a lot of the like masculinity wounds come from is feeling like not desirable or not needed. And as a priest, like it is a marriage relationship where you, you're called to like get on the cross and die for people with faces and names. And you want them just to want that, you know? That's so true at a basic level. Like I literally am thinking right now of a girl in college that I had a huge crush on and she just did not like me back, man, like flat out. And it was the freaking worst. Mm-hmm. She didn't return my love. You know, it yeah. was the worst. Totally, man. Yeah. And there is something also, which I was actually praying about this past week around the speaking, like the desire to speak, to go out and uh, have three dogs north meet folks. And like, I don't know, it seemed to be the natural progression of the podcast of, like, yeah, we want, we do, we want to go out and sh- spread Christianity, which means our faces, our bodies, us as people encountering other people, other bodies, other faces. And the the thought that was really, really consoling um, in my prayer, it was very, very life bringing was like the reality that if someone's going to have us out, <laughs> which is just a hilarious, odd, but possibly realistic notion is <laughs> they want to hear us and they want to meet us. And um, the thought or just kind of like imagining the experience of us wanting so badly to be with people. And like, this is the end of Christianity is sharing a relationship centered on Christ and them desiring that and having the experience of when your heart receives, like when your soul is longing for the thing it's desiring and having that kind of like come to fulfillment slash fruition on this Christ-centered, personalistic conversation slash meeting slash sharing of the goodness of God there. Um, but it's a it's a profound thing to, one, first off, to be able to name a desire, but then two, to have the desire for what you want be met exactly like how and in the way that you want it to be met. So your heart is so satisfied there. Uh, that's an incredible thing. And like you said, I mean, as a priest, 
you have that. People are longing for that deep, deep down. And the priest uh, provides that for people in like in a supernatural way that's pretty incalculable. Yeah, for some reason I was thinking about, um, did I mention it my homily this weekend for the Ascension? This young nun that I met in Kansas City uh, at Adam Wilzak's ordination. And Kansas City, for some reason, has I think it's their archbishop, has all sorts of really cool religious communities living there in that diocese. Yeah, they do. And um, like young orders and new orders and stuff like that. So, but there were these, there was this community of sisters at the ordination and at the reception afterwards that I, it just caught my eye during the mass and afterwards, like these long flowing brown habits with super long black veils that went down to like the back of their knees. And they just looked like angels. And they were all these young women that were just beautiful. And I had to, it was like alluring. I just had to know like, who are these people? So I go up to them after the, after the reception and um, I'm sitting with them and they're from Brazil. And it's this order that started basically, I, I'm not going to get all the details right and I don't remember the name of it, but um, basically I think either a seminarian or a young priest who was diocesan felt called to like live under the bridge in this really poor area of one of the cities of Brazil and just live with and work with and minister to the needs of the poorest of the poor mm. as a priest. And it was just like St. Francis of Assisi and the lepers or something like you just start out with this little project, like very concrete and specific, this bridge, this place, these people, and people started coming and, you know, formed a rule and it was very organic. And now they have communities and on like several continents and several countries. And, um, one of them is in Kansas city and it was a women's community that had at least eight nuns living in this, uh, apartment above a homeless shelter that they ran in the poor, poor part of Kansas City, Kansas. And uh, I went and said mass for them the next day. I was like, I was a brand new priest. I'm like, can I come say mass for you? And the, this guy happened to be there visiting from Brazil. He was like visiting all the communities he had throughout the world. And he was like my age. He looked seriously young, but he also looked like St. Francis. He was just this small Brazilian guy with a beard and he he was like taking a nap in the sister's house like one of them like gave him her bed for the afternoon because he was just like he's constantly moving around all over visiting his sisters and brothers and he comes out of his room like bleary-eyed from a nap and they're like this is father connor he's a he's a newly ordained priest and he gets on his knees and kisses my hands and he's like oh no you i said father if you if you are here this is like your only visit to these sisters like for a year, you can say the mass. And he's like, no, father, you say the mass, you know, um, I, I will just attend. And he sat and he just knelt in the back the whole time. And I don't know, the whole thing was just so it was like meeting a saint, you know, mm. but I was talking to this one sister the day before at the reception, when I first met them, I was just curious, like, what are you all about? Like, what, what's your story? You specifically. And she said that uh, we were speaking in Spanish because she didn't speak English very well and I didn't speak Portuguese. So we're speaking Spanish to one another. And she said that uh, when she was like 14 or 15, she felt called to give her life to Jesus. Um, and so she thought maybe I'll be a nun. And she went around to different religious communities. And um, she said a lot of the sisters, when they 
you know, saw this young girl wanting to be a nun. They were just so excited. And they were trying to like sell her. Uh, she was saying it very charitably, but this is basically what what happened to her. It sounded like that these nuns were trying to like attract her to the convent. And so they'd say things like, you know, we have these nice rooms and you can pretty much wear what you want. Like there's no strict rules on habits and even jobs. You know, you have to take a vow of obedience, but the, your, your superior will let you do whatever you feel called to do and blah, blah, blah. Like downplaying the uh, sacrifice aspect. Like you'll have a really good time here and you'll be happy because you'll have everything you need. Well, she says uh, <clears throat> like nothing about that really attracted to her and she wasn't sure maybe she wasn't called to be a nun until she met these people and uh, whatever the prioress or, or the, the woman in charge of the convent of these sisters there in Brazil, when she met her, like first thing she said, if you join us, you will have three things only. You'll have Jesus to love, the cross to carry, and the poor to take care of. And she said, when she, when she heard that, she's like, this is my home. This is where I belong, where God's calling me. And that she was like maybe 19 or 20 when I met her up in Kansas. And she like just beautiful, biggest smile on her face. One of the happiest people I've ever met and talked to and attractive. I just like, I wanted to serve her. I wanted like, can I come say mass for you all? And and whatever and and they're like giving me things they have nothing but they like make these crosses i still have a cross that they gave me in my office but um i don't know like to me that is i mean back to the guy in the in the assisted living place like you just get down to brass tacks of what's really important in life and uh what you really need to be happy and it's not that much except that what it is is like infinite and it's this personal relationship you know and it we it's so easy to get distracted in things that don't matter um but i think about that story and that that woman and just like that's it what do i care about all this other stuff if you have jesus to love the cross to carry and the poor to take care of that's all you need to be happy that's crazy that's revolutionary dude yeah that's pretty good i was thinking when you were talking uh it was in pre-theology too, I think. Monsignor Lyle came and gave a formation talk to us, who had been obviously the previous rector at Mundelein before Father Barron. But a line that really hit me, and he said it totally in passing in this talk. It was just about, I, I don't remember what the talk was about, honestly, but he's talking a little bit about Therese and just priesthood and formation and the long process of seminary. And he said, he was like, guys, you need to realize... Not, not you need to realize, you need to be perfectly okay with the fact that when you die, no one is going to know your name and the world may not remember your name. You need to be perfectly okay with that in order to, to lead a happy Christian life. I don't know, when you're just talking about that, those three things, that's profound, man, of like Jesus to love the cross to carry and the poor to take care of. Um yeah, that is, uh, that speaks to the heart. I don't know how else to, to say it, but it was just for some reason I was relating it to when Monsignor Lyle told us that as well. Because um, that was compelling to me when he, when he said that. Um, he's like, you need to be totally okay with that. That's the only way to be happy is being totally okay with that. Yeah, and I mean, it's depending on your personality or your attachments 
I think that, um, you know, it's scary. Like if somebody, I, I don't know that I would in, in the same situation she was in hear those three things and be like, yes, that's what I want to do. I feel called to, to give up everything just so that I can have those three things. But once you like, maybe it's a helpful exercise to put your, put a name to the things that you are afraid, uh, you won't be able to have to make you happy. If you, if all you had were those three things and you're like, yeah, but I, what about Netflix or, you know, uh, what about worldwide fame from podcasting? Yeah. So, like any of that, I'm stuff. not going to give that up for sure. Uh, you know, of course that's nice to have and we do have it but <laughs> in, in we didn't plenty. go looking for it in plenty we have copious please review us on itunes yeah we have copious amounts of fame <laughs> dude it's interesting because yesterday for our orientation they had probably like a two-hour presentation about the power of people and how this hospital has happy employees because they do these things that make them happy and then it was like a very detailed two or three page, you know, like perfectly groomed, perfectly manufactured list of life activities that you have to do. And then you're going to be happy, you know, like, what? And it, I mean, anything, dude, like if you're feeling sad, go out and jog. So like a lot of things that humanly speaking are very, very good. Right. But it just, I don't, I, I always see that and think you are crushing the human person right now. Um, the dynamism that is infinitely present within the human being, aka like God and love and the Holy Spirit and infinite uniqueness is being literally put into boxes that we are calling four sections of the human being and we have to visit four different rooms of the house. Mm. Um, and then like if you visit all those places, then you'll be happy. But I mean... <sighs> When it's like look, life is a video game. Like you're, you need more mana, so go jog. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Or like if you just do this list of things, then I, I always look at those things and think you can't cheat. <laughs> like you can't take shortcuts for this. And the reality is the shortcut is just three. It's three simple things. Like that is that is the short, simple thing. What we're talking about is... Jesus to love, a cross to carry, and the poor to take care of. Holy smokes, dude. What if I had gotten up and, and actually proposed that to the class? I wonder, I wonder what they would have said. But no, instead we had like a 30-page packet of how we can be happy. And then, then Northside is going to be a better hospital, you know? So it's, just, it's an interesting juxtaposition there of what I experienced yesterday of manufactured happiness. And, and there are some happy people, for sure. Of course, there's genuinely happy people that are there. Well, part of that, I think, is just looking at even the word human resources. I, I think it's a useful and, and true term in some respect because human re resources are your greatest asset. You know, like we think of kind of economically speaking, oh, more people equals more mouths to feed or more people emitting greenhouse gases. But you're just like, well, okay, you can just like, kill people or do population control and you'll have less mouths to feed but you also have less innovators and inventors to make life better and easier and uh the environment cleaner or or whatever else like thought leaders and religious leaders and human without human human quote-unquote resources then you got nothing you know um 
there's no purpose to even feeding mouths, you know, if, if you don't think of the human person as an end in itself. But that's why I think like you, you think it sounds to me like that packet was basically like, you know, preventative maintenance and care for your 2013 Honda Accord. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like preventative maintenance care and care for your, you know, <clears throat> nurse or accountant. You know, this is how you make sure that they're happy so that your big machine factory called this hospital works well, you know. But it, it was interesting how they finished because in a lot of ways it was like a take on intellectualism as going to be your means to happiness. So like it's just a matter of perspective. So if you're unhappy, it's because you're choosing to be unhappy. So just like choose to be happy and then you'll be okay. Was honestly like a condensed version of at least a portion of what they gave. But then they went on to quote Victor Frankel, hmm. who wrote Man's Search for Meaning and talking about like his whole thing is you have to live a life of meaning and purpose. And then they they have like a Gandhi quote that was um it was significant to the topic. But then they finished with Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Really? <laughs> and I was like, the heck is this, man? I, I mean, I love Viktor Frankl. Man's Search for Meaning is an incredible book. Um, and like, I really think delves into the depth of a lot of problems that we experience today. If a guy can be happy and experience freedom and um, like actual meaning and purpose while he's in a concentration camp, maybe we should listen to yeah. that guy. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's crazy. And then Archbishop Fulton Sheen. But see, even there, like what they're saying is the end result of a life lived, loving Jesus, carrying the cross, and being with the poor, being with the marginalized, being with the people who are wounded and hurt and need love, loving people and being loved. That's what they're saying at the very end is the result of a life lived full of love and meaning and purpose. And so you can't just take the last sentence and use it how you want. Like it Human beings just don't, we don't work like that. Mm -hmm. And to try and think that we can just plug in an algorithm or a sentence that can change the way you think and make your world better, um, it's, it's cheating the human person. It's just, I, well, I thought that is, was I think. so interesting. I think it's, a, it's I'm not going to get this right because I don't know Thomas Aquinas very well, but I, I'm thinking of a Thomistic distinction. It's something like, you know, the purpose of human life to Thomas Aquinas is to be happy, right? That's <clears throat> that's the outcome that why God made us is to be eternally, infinitely happy. But that's the effect of uh, being happy is the effect of having attained the object of our desire, which is God. So like what happens a lot, I think with any sin, but then especially like in secularism where because sin is living as if God doesn't exist. Secularism is trying to have a society that pretends that God doesn't exist. You know, like, so all of our legal stuff and all of our public schooling and education, like, we just have to bracket God for the sake of pluralism or, or whatever else. And, you know, that's an experiment and we've tried it and people just say, like, you know, you can, you can practice your religion and act as if God exists on your own time, you know. And to some extent, it's sanctioned by the government, like, if you give money to a church, you can deduct it from your taxes and stuff. You know, it's like this weird, I don't know, relationship between God and the public square. But um, what ends up happening, I think, is like, you know, you're in a company and even at Catholic hospitals. I don't know that this isn't even in our own institutions, but we have to everybody like knows happiness is the object everyone's after. 
but we can't talk about the thing that we know is what actually makes you happy, which is having a relationship with the origin and destiny of the universe, the personal God who loved us into being and who wants to be with us for all eternity. Like that, that's the answer to the question, how do I be happy? And that's why a 20 year old who could have anything she wants in the world, you know, she's smart, she's good looking, um, you know, energetic. And she says, all I need is Jesus to love the cross to carry and the poor to take care of. And she's happy that like confronting that mystery blows up the whole, you know, you need to jog and to, you know, have close friends and, uh, you know, a comfortable living place that gives you joy and do enough yoga or whatever else. And I, I don't want to be mean, but that to me, it's like that, that whole system of like trying to conjure the effect without uh, reference to the actual object, you know, being happy is the result of knowing and loving God, you know, and without him, you can't get that. You can't just like make yourself happy. But with him, you almost need nothing else, you know? Dude, that sums it up, and I got to go, so. All right. Well, good talk, guys. I know, it was. I know it wasn't ideal, and you guys don't understand the art of it all, but once I get done editing, this is going to be our most well-loved episode ever. That always happens. Really? Well, dude, good luck with this one, because <laughs> it is a, a weird monster beast that we just pooped out. <laughs> Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Down.